0: great is your faithfulness towards us now God we pray that you will open our hearts our minds and let us see wonderful things in your word today things that we can apply to our lives that will make us more like Jesus for it's in Jesus name we pray amen I invite you to turn with me once again to. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I just want to read the first four verses of what Pastor Harris has already read in our hearing. Paul wrote, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, So that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. One more verse. Does not behave rudely does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. I want to preach part two of a sermon series I began on last week entitled What Love Really Is. And, you know, last week we talked about um, what Hollywood says love is and what the television tells us that love is and what the Internet tells us that love is. But the best place to get a definition of what love really is, is from God, God's word. And so we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 that has been named by many uh, called the the love chapter. And interestingly enough, Paul wrote these words to uh, the Corinthian church that was a very, very complex place. They had a lot of issues. For example, in chapter 12, uh, Paul talked about the uh, unity and diversity in in the in the body. There was the issue of spiritual gifts and 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 the issue of uh, people using and misusing uh, spiritual gifts and thinking one was better than the other. And then in chapter 14, he's talking about tongues and the youth of tongues and the controversy that that calls in the church. And so right there in chapter 13 is sandwiched between two very challenging books of the Bible that Paul addresses. And out of that grows this this great word on what love really is. Last week we talked about love, Paul said, is patience. And, 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 and that word means long-suffering. And we talked about how important it is for us as Christians to have a long fuse, not a short fuse. And many of you watch the cartoons where the little guy had a stick of dynamite in his hand and had a, had a short fuse. And he lit it, and before he could throw it, it blowed up on him. Patience, we have a long fuse, Paul would say. And then we talked about love is kind, meaning love is considerate, considerate of others. Uh, If any place ought to be a kind environment, it ought to be the church. Any place other than a home where people can come and, and, and experience the kindness, it ought to be the church. But now today, Paul continues to flesh out the meaning of love he began continues to paint this panoramic picture of what love is from God's perspective what that is what a God paid love is the love God has for his people the love that prompted Jesus to suffer and bleed and die for sinners own Calvary's cross Paul continues to paint a vivid picture of love by writing in verse 4 love does not envy love does not envy. The word in the text simply means to have negative, unwholesome feelings against another person or persons because of what they have. And again, he's. The Uh, Address this whole issue of a spiritual gift. There there was envy because some people had one, others had another. and, And instead of appreciating what God had done, envy began to grow and blossom. Envy is that unwholesome feeling against another person or persons because of what they have. What they have which was in the case of of Paul in the Corinthian church, what they have may be gifts. What they have may be positions. What they have may be friends or recognition or possessions or popularity or abilities. And the list goes on and on. But the point Paul is making to the Corinthian church and the point that he is making to us is that love, the genuine love of God, agape love, love does not begrudge or attack or downplay the abilities and success of others. That's what he's saying. So what that means for us is that people who have the flea-flowing fountain of God's love pouring through, our lives will not waste time envying or being envious towards other people. That's if the free-flowing fountain, there is a fountain filled with blood flows from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and stain. Well, if the free-flowing fountain, blood, love of Jesus Christ is flowing through our spiritual veins, the people of God will not waste time envying or being envious of other people. Why? Well, first, because we understand that as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we are all on the same team and victory for one of us is victory for all of us like the athletic team it's the ninth inning baseball your team is up by one it's the it's the last inning It's two strikes, three balls, the final pitch of the game. Two runners are on base. The batter hits. It's a center field fly. Your center fielder catches the ball. Game is over. You win. Who in their right mind would be angry because they did not make the winning play? The whole team wins if it is. And if it, if this, the World Series, everybody on the team gets a ring. Who would waste time being envious towards a center fielder because he caught the ball that caused them to win the game? Well, sad to say, but far too many congregations and religious denominations, as well as non denominations see themselves as competitors rather than comrades. So instead of focusing on Jesus and the oneness, the togetherness, the unity that Jesus brings to his church, regardless of what your name, the name of the church or your particular fellowship, the focus is on petty theological differences which have no bearing at all on salvation. For example, we're not saved by whether or not we play musical instruments in the church. Some churches do, some churches don't, but that's insignificant in relationship to our salvation. We're not saved by whether or not women wear suits or dresses to church. Some people prefer pants, others prefer dresses, but salvation has absolutely nothing to do With that, we are saved because of grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not by works, lest any man, anyone shall boast, so says Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. So what happens when people get off track and become competitors is envy and jealousy and hatred creeps in second when we are so enamored consumed engulfed with thanking God for the gifts he has so freely and graciously given us and when we are so busy operating in our giftedness we won't have time to be interested in envying anybody else Because we'll be so busy, engulfed in operating in our gift, the joy of operating in our gift, until we will not be interested in envying what anybody else does. And third, when we understand that envying others literally destroys our health, let me say that again. When we understand that envying others, not figuratively speaking, but, but, but literally destroys our health, we ought to hasten to the realization that envying other people is not worth it. It's just not worth the cause. Notice the picture Solomon paints of envying others in Proverbs 14 and 30. Solomon writes, a sound heart is life to the bone, get this, but envy is rottenness to the bone. Well, Paul continues on his theme of what love is by saying love does not parade itself or vaunt itself. Perhaps Paul had in mind the arrogance, the the pride, the grandiose personification of self importance flaunted by gladiators as they paraded themselves into the arena for battle. Maybe he had in mind the haughtiness, the egotism, the superiority projected by the Roman soldiers as they paraded through the streets, daring anyone to defy Roman authority we we don't know for sure but maybe he had those things on his mind but one thing we do know is that paul had in mind the pride and the arrogance and the conceit of those who had spiritual gifts and yet believed that their gift was more important than someone else's and so what paul says is that when God puts his love in the hearts and minds of his people. People then do not vaunt themselves in condescending parade behavior. Paul conveys to the church the message that love is not boastful, does not brag, nor seek recognition. Honor or applause from others in recognition for a job well done. If recognition for a job well done comes, should honor come? Should applause come if rewards come from others in recognition for a job well done, a task successfully completed, a profitable ministry implemented? That has its place, Paul would say. But that's not why love does what it does. Love does what it does not to vaunt itself, not to be seen. Love does what it does for the glory and the honor of God and not for human applause. Paul reiterates this message in Philippians 2 and 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Paul continues this idea, this, this picture of what love is again in verse 4. He writes, love is, underscore, not puffed up. The word Paul uses for puffed up is similar to the word he uses for parade of vaunt. It means that love does not show, model, demonstrate an attitude a disposition which suggests that oneself is better than anyone else. In fact, the opposite is true. Love, which is not puffed up, is always looking, always searching always seeking opportunities to lift up, elevate, promote, shine the spotlight on others rather than themselves. Paul would have us know that agape love is modest and humble, and it recognizes and honors others. Verse 5, Paul writes, love does not behave rudely. The word Paul uses for rude means to behave indecently or disgracefully. Paul obviously has in mind the rude behavior of certain Corinthian church members who were acting out in div- uh, divisive ways. They were being disrespectful and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. He obviously had that on his mind when he was talking about love does not behave rudely. Now, some would argue that rudeness has cultural variations and time variations. What might be considered rude behavior in one culture may not be considered rude behavior in another. Here are several examples of cultural variations of rude behavior. In Saudi Arabia, it is considered rude for a man to sit on a bus or in any public place and cross his leg so that somebody can see the bottom of his foot. That is extremely rude in Middle Eastern culture, in the Saudi culture. But in our culture, we don't even think about it. We don't even think about it. Well, in Japan, it's rude to enter someone's home without removing your shoes. I mean, it's just rude, you know. You 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 walk into somebody's house and you see uh, uh sh- Matt's shoes there, and they have slippers for you to take your shoes off and 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 walk around. But but in our homes, in some cases, it would be rude to walk into somebody's house and take your sh- shoes off. You see the cultural differences. In Germany, in Germany, and perhaps some of you have been there, it's rude to drive in the passing lane unless you are preparing to pass or you're passing somebody. And and Germans will let you know. They will blow. They will drive right up behind you. They will flash their lights. They're letting you know that this is rude. This is not our culture, yet we do it on our highways all the time. Well, in addition to cultural variations, there are time variations relative to rudeness, some would argue. Several examples of time variations would be back in the day, back back in my, my day, it was rude for children to, to get in adult conversation without being invited. In fact, one of, the, one of the quickest ways to get smacked across the lips was to walk up and get involved, for a child to get involved in grown folk conversation. And they would tell you, this is grown, grown people are talking, you go have a seat someplace. It, it was rude. But nowadays, not only are children in adult conversations, many of them are dominating the conversation, talking back to parents like they were talking to another child. And the parents in a lot of cases see absolutely nothing wrong with it. That was a time when it was rude to pass somebody walking on the street in relatively close proximity and and not, and not speak to them. Or at least nod. I mean, it was just really rude. If you, when I grew up in South Carolina, if you walked past past somebody, you all, you spoke or you at least nodded to acknowledge their presence. You raised your hand or you did something. In fact, if you walked by an older person in our community and you didn't speak, and the word got back to your parents or your grandparents, you were in trouble. They said Miss Johnson told me you walked right by her today, or you saw her standing at the bus stop, and you didn't even you didn't even speak. And then it got deeper because you said, "No, Mama, I didn't see Miss Johnson." Yeah, Miss Johnson said you looked right at her. Now you're in trouble because she asked you, "Are you calling Miss Johnson a liar?" But it, but it was just rude. It's rude. I've even noticed that on college campus and perhaps Dr. Harris and and Pastor Stevens and others of you who work in a university setting uh, can attest to this. I've noticed that students will not only walk past adults on on a college campus and not say anything, not greet you, but but they they'll walk by each other. I I I observed that. I just wanted to see for myself. I wanted to, I wanted to see. You know, but they pass each other I mean, they can be on the same sidewalk. And I, I I remember back at Benedict, I mean, you 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 pass another student, you you may not be the same major, they might not be in your class, but it was always how you doing, uh, what's up, what's going on? Some kind of gesture. But now in our culture, people pass by each other and it's no big deal. Well But when Paul writes in verse 4, love does not behave rudely, he's talking about a standard of behavior which supersedes culture and time. What Paul is saying is when you and I have the love of God in us, our behavior will not be indecent, disrespectful dishonorable or improper by God's standards get this now which do not change God's standards are not confined to cultural variations or time variations because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever so says Hebrews 13 and 8 so His standard of rudeness doesn't change. Paul says in verse 5, love does not seek its own. Look at that picture. Love does not seek its own. What he said is love is not selfish. Not stuck on personal accomplishments or experiences, but rather eager to shine the spotlight. On the accomplishments of others. That's what it means when he said love does not seek its own. It, 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 it means that, that there's no selfishness there and, and, and that real love is eager to shine the spotlight on the accomplishments of others. There was an issue in the Corinthian church surrounding spiritual gifts. People began to argue over and compare the validity of one gift to another or over another. Paul said, stop it. All the gifts come from God and every gift is needed for the building up of the body. First Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. Footnote. Have you noticed that when some people write the script, they always get the leading roles? But don't you find it refreshing to see somebody, particularly in the church, write a script, and instead of highlighting self, they highlight others? Isn't it refreshing to see people in the church who are so full of the love of Jesus and so confident in who God has called them to be and what God has called them to do until they are willing to help others grow, help others develop, and help others shine. Well, here at Good Hope, we all witnessed this during our Christmas play. Sister Miller wrote the script. Y'all remember the play is one of the most marvelous, moving plays that 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 I've ever witnessed. She she wrote the script, and then, as Paul would say, she stood back on the night of the performance, and she watched others shine. Y'all remember that? That's what Paul is talking about. Last night at the marriage gala, Pastor Sister Stevens wrote the script, and they put a lot of work into the gala. They had help from various places, but they put a lot of work in the gala. It was obvious that Pastor Sister Stevens wrote the script, but did not place themselves at the head table. Those of you who were there last night witnessed that. Most often when people write the script, they are at the head table. It's a wonderful rarity to see somebody write the script and then sit back and watch other people shine. That's what Paul is talking about. That's the way he wanted the Corinthian church to be. That's the way our church should be. That's the way the church of our Lord and Jesus Savior Jesus Christ should be paul says in verse 5 as he moves on love is not provoked this means love is not irritable not easily angered as one verb translation reads not quick to take an offense not hot-headed not swift to fly off the, the handle Among God's greatest gifts to his church is people who are not easily provoked. People who have calm spirits and level heads. People who exercise the fruit of the spirit, self-control. It is those people who stem the tide and make the ride smoother for everybody. And every church has them the people that Paul talking about people who are not easily provoked not only do they stem the tide publicly but they work behind the scenes they're on the phone they're in private meetings they're at lunch lunches together they're at the dinner table together working behind the scenes to ensure that everything runs smoothly. I've been pastoring long enough to know that when I get to meetings, when I get to meetings, people who are not easily provoked have been working long before the meeting time comes. Greasing the axle, smoothing the wheels, making sure that when the meeting happens, everything runs smoothly. That's what Paul is talking about. Where the devil, our adversary, the evil one, the wicked one, where he would use a molehill to build a mountain, Those who are not easily provoked know how to diffuse potential explosive situations that inevitably divert disaster. So when you're in a place, when you're in a church, thank God for people who are not easily provoked People who God is using to stem the tide to make life smooth for everybody. And lastly today, and I'll wrap it up with this one. Paul says, love thinks no evil. What Paul is saying here is that when evil has been done, Those who have the love of God within refuse to nurse the hurt, refuse to become bitter, refuse to become hateful, and refuse to become resentful. He's not denying that bad things do happen sometimes to good people. But what he is saying is that when they happen, love thinks no evil. Some of the most loving people in the church are people who have been hurt deeply. I found that. That's been my experience. Some of the most loving, some of the most effective people in the church are people who have been hurt deeply in church. People who have been hurt know what it is to be hurt and do all they can to prevent hurting others because they've been hurt. Reminded of a story, and I've shared it once, perhaps some of you have heard it, of a great opera. And the man who Wrote a song, wrote the song in this opera, was there in the opera house that night. And he had a friend with him. And this young lady stood up and she sang beautifully. Voice was beautiful, rang out all over the opera house. People were standing on their feet applauding the sound of this young girl's voice. Everybody stood up except one man, the man who had written the song. The young man who was at the opera with him, drove him to the opera house, was curious as to why he wasn't standing, and he asked him, Did you not enjoy? Was she not great? To which the old man looked at him and responded, when she gets her heart broken, she will really be able to sing that song. People who have been hurt often provide the greatest service. And they do everything they can to ensure that others don't go through what they've been through. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what he's talking about. Some of the most loving people in the church have been through things. Well, as I close, they pity me of being hurt on behalf of others if Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. To be sure the false accusations levied against him hurt. To be sure the lies that were told on him hurt. It's certain that being beaten, battered, and bruised hurt. When they spat upon him, I'm sure it hurt. The so-called friends who were with him for a while were with him when he was passing out the the fish and and the loaves and who were with him on on Palm Sunday when they went into Jerusalem, turned and left him that hurt. The crowd of thorns twisted on his head hurt. The nails in his hands and the nails in his feet nailing his feet, hurt. The lacerated veins hurt. The spear in his side hurt. Seeing the agony and the horror in his mother's eyes, in Mary's eyes, hurt. But he stayed right there on the cross and he died so that we would not have to face the ultimate hurt.